Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the indispensable shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. My co-host, Elliot Cohen, is the Robert E. Osgood Professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, how are you? I'm doing just fine, actually. Uh, I uh, wrote the blurb to my uh, my Shakespeare book, so I'm actually feeling productive for a change. Oh, so you're like Secretary Pompeo. You're blurbing your own book. Is that right? You can be very mean sometimes. <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> Why don't you know you podcast? You podcast with somebody for a while, tempers begin to fray. This is, I think, familiarity breeding contempt. Why don't you introduce our our guest, uh, very special guest today? Happy to do so, Eric. It's a real pleasure to have a uh, a good friend of ours, Constanza Stelson Miller, with us. Uh, Constanza is the director of the Center on the United States and Europe. A pretty timely title, I have to say, at the Brookings Institution. She's also the inaugural holder of the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations. Fritz Stern, of course, a uh, extraordinary scholar of, uh, of Germany based here in the United States. Uh, she has a law degree. She has a doctorate in law from the University of Bonn. Uh, she attended the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and has a degree from there. She's done a whole bunch of things, including uh, working as a journalist for many years, uh, serving as, I believe, a deputy editor of uh, Die Zeit. No, editor. an editor. An, an, an editor. editor and writer. That's very confusing. But Sorry about, sorry about that. Uh, for uh, foreign affairs and national security at uh, Die Zeit, one of the great German newspapers. Uh, she has too many other affiliations to go through, given the subjects that we have that we want to talk to her about. I'll just say that she is uh, really one of the most interesting people I know, not just on Germany and not just on Europe, but on the on the ever vexed question of transatlantic relations. So if I can, let me begin, Constanza. It would be uh, it's going to be very hard to avoid the topic of the day We're we're taping this just as uh, it still remains unclear what exactly Germany is going to do with all those Leopard 2 tanks that everybody wants them to ship to Ukraine. But I'll I want to begin by sort of broadening it. I'll uh, indulge in a, a gratuitous display of erudition and quote one of my favorite, favorite lines from Heinrich Heine, the great German poet, Denke ich an Deutschland in der Nacht, dann bin ich um den Schlaf gebracht. I think about Germany in the middle of the night and I lose sleep, which I think is the position that a number of us here in the United States have taken. And I guess the question that I'd like to pose to you is this. I mean, given that actually Germany has done, I think, several remarkable things, uh, one of which is kind of publicly acknowledging that the very, very close approach to Russia did not work out. And I think you know, we don't always acknowledge just how big a change that is. Given that Germany has actually shipped a lot of stuff to Ukraine, including lethal aid, still there is something baffling about the way in which it's happened. And in particular, this this latest issue, which is the issue of will Germany not just ship its own tanks to uh, Ukraine, but allow other countries in Europe, 
and there are a lot of European countries that have German tanks, which are quite good, to ship them to Ukraine. And I guess my, my question for you, just as a way of getting us started, is, you know, is this about Chancellor Schultz? Is this about the SPD, his party, or is this in some larger measure about Germany? How, how do we understand this? And welcome. Well, first of all, thank you very much uh, for having me on your podcast. It's an honor to be the potted fern to you two. And I will uh, be happy to do my best to answer your questions. Um, and of course, we all guessed what the topic of this was going to be. Let me start by saying what I think this is not about. I personally don't really think that German history weighs as much in this particular debate as it might have five or ten years ago. Although, you know, for any educated German, the fact that this war is taking place in what Timothy Snyder referred to as the Bloodlands, where both Hitler and the Soviet Union committed most of the bloodshed of World War II and the Holocaust, that weighs heavily on every, any, any educated German's mind. But I don't think it is a determinative factor for Germany's indecision or its ultimate decisions. Nor do I think Pache, uh, a lot of Twitter, that this is about Germany wanting to make ni nice with Russia, Germany wanting to preserve standing to do business with Russia again after the end of the war, whenever that is. I also think, for whatever it's worth, that Charles, despite a student Ruth youth as a left-wing radical in the SPD, and despite his career as a supporter of Gerhard Schröder when, when he was chancellor, I think that, that by the, his party's standards, Schultz has really moved to, to the conservative wing of that party and considers himself a committed transatlanticist, right? I think that just as an, to sort of discard some factors, uh, I, I think is important to say. That said, all the factors that you've just named, uh, the German public opinion, the party, and the character of the man himself, um, all appear to, pl uh, to play a role here. Let me perhaps start with German public opinion. And since you referenced my journalistic career, I went to Somalia with a German brigade in 1993. That was the first time after sending a handful of medics to Cambodia in 1992 that the Germans actually sent a significant military deployment anywhere after the end of the Cold War. So I have some form in, in uh, following German debates on these things. And I think that I'm seeing a genuine deep emotion, empathy, and, and horror in German public opinion at this Russian invasion. And it does help here that the Russians are accusing a president of Ukraine who is Jewish and who has Jewish cabinet members of being a Nazi and using language in the way it speaks about Ukraine and the way the Kremlin speaks about Ukraine, Russian media speak about Ukraine and in the way that um, Putin himself speaks about, about Ukraine that uses a kind of essential othering that is very familiar, again, to any German who is educated in the language of the Third Reich. Many of us in school had to read the Lingua Tati Imperi, the famous study of Nazi language by Viktor Klemperer, 
himself a Jewish German who survived the persecution of the Third Reich and wrote a memorable set of diaries uh, that's somewhat recently been, been translated into English. As for public opinion on the tanks themselves, a recent opinion poll showed a plurality of 46% of Germans for tank deliveries and 33%, sorry, 43%, so 46 versus 43, against. That's just a split public opinion. And I do understand politicians who worry about that. Now, the obvious retort to that is, you know, that is where leadership comes in, right? Okay, that, so much for public opinion. On the party itself, again, I think I'm seeing a split. I think it's really notable that the language about Ukraine, the outrage, the willingness to stand up against Russia, I think varies along a generational scale. The older the parliamentarian, the older the party member, the more likely they are to adhere somewhat unthinkingly to Egon Barr's sort of precepts of Ostpolitik, which is really a balancing of the West and the East. The younger they are, in my personal experience, the more willing they're, they're, they are to ditch that. Interestingly enough, this is the day today on which the Social Democratic Party has published new guidance on, on its foreign policy. And where it explicitly says we made mistakes in our Russia policy. Uh, we need to revise our relationship with Russia. And for, the, for now, we have to define security in Europe against Russia, not with it. That's a really significant departure. That said, there is a glorious tradition in the Social Democratic Party of the parliamentary groups shooting down its own chancellors, right? Schroeder did that, uh, sorry, that was done to Schroeder because of his labor market liberalization policies, and it was done to Helmut Schmidt because of his support for the US um, medium range missile decisions, the famous Pershing twos. So that leaves us with Schroeder the man, sorry, Schultz the man himself. And I'm sorry, this is me just uh, misspeaking. Um, he's, I think, in no way comparable to Schroeder, who's genuinely corrupt. Um, and I think Schultz is absolutely not that. I suspect this is a character issue, and this is where I'm least happy to speculate, if only because I've only met him once, I've sat on a panel with him once. He is a man who keeps his own counsel, a taciturn politician who deeply dis dislikes being pushed into a corner, but who I think in this situation has genuinely boxed himself into a corner. And I will end on, on this point, and, and I will promise to give shorter answers in the future, but you did ask a very wide-ranging question. Um, the Chancellery Speaker today said that the Chancellery had not decided, had not decided to say no, it had just not decided yet. And the Spiegel article that quotes that says it expects a decision by the end of the week. Now, that is, uh, a German to that would say, your word in God's ear. But I am willing to bet that we are going to let other countries send their tanks and that we will also end up sending some of our own. It's notable, though, that, that the, just maybe one last point. The polls are just now saying that they will now ask Germany officially for permission to send. So I, I, I guess if I could ask just one quick follow-up and then hand it, hand it over to, to Eric. How self-aware are German elites about, and specifically the SPD elites, 
to, to the damage it does, because it seems to me, I mean, we were talking a little bit about this before, that, you know, Germany eventually does do the right thing, but it almost does it in such a way that guarantees that it doesn't get any credit for doing the right thing, because it looks like it's been, you know, dragged or compelled or coerced. And I can understand all the dynamics you're describing, but but it, I, I guess, I suppose my question is, do you think it has done damage to Germany's standing? I mean, I tend to think it has. You know, all those things are eventually, you know, can be repaired over time. But but do they feel that? Does it do they does it matter to them? How how do we understand that? Again, I'm not privy to what people in the Chancellery are thinking right now. What I do know from personal experience is that they're somewhat thin skinned with regard to criticism. Americans aren't like that, you know. Absolutely not. And I was actually just going to go there, if I may. I have to, un, you know, unconditionally agree with you that this has done damage to Germany's standing, and needlessly so, because as you say, Germany has actually ended up being a um, the third or fourth largest supplier of military heavy weapon systems to Ukraine and huge quantities of ammunition. And some of those weapon systems, as the Ukrainians say themselves, have been very, very effective on the battlefield especially the Gepard um, mobile air defenses and the Iris-T air defense system. And I can also, I think, assure you with some conviction that this, these are not great days for German diplomats, right? I don't think anybody's having fun here. But I will also say that perhaps one way to explain this to, to American listeners is that in some ways, the Germans have become, because of their economic power and their centrality to everything that happens in Europe, something like the Americans in Europe, right? Or the, the functional equivalent of the Americans in Europe. We're the 800 pound gorilla, right? Without whom nothing happens. And if it turns over in its sleep, um, that has consequences for smaller inhabitants of the, of the jungle. But the 800-pound gorilla's empathy and awareness of its own surroundings is, is occasionally somewhat reduced, right? And of course, German political debates are parochial. I mean, if you look at the opening of, of Congress two weeks ago, you know, yes, that happens in other countries too, right? Not everything that we do is, is, is said or done with, in the consciousness that it is being watched worldwide. Should we be doing that? I, I think so. But, but you know, um, domestic policies, are, uh, politics are a constraining factor here. And the chancellor is clearly exquisitely concerned about taking his party and the German public along. So, Costanza, let me, I know you're loath to uh, speculate about Chancellor Schultz, but uh, allow me to pull on a couple of threads here, because you've written a terrific column in the Financial Times about the chancellor last week about how he's a wartime chancellor, whether he wants to be or or not, which echoes, I know, things that Elliot wrote in the Obama years about President Obama vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan and, and Iraq. And I, I want to pull on the string. You talked about his biography as a, a radical uh, leftist in the SPD uh, in his youth. I, you know, I, I have some sympathy for that position, given my own misspent youth in, in university on the left. But I'm wondering, I mean... Tell us more. <laughs> well, Elliot knows the whole sordid story. But um, the question is really, 
you know, is there a biographical route here? Is this something that makes him uncomfortable because of his political past? Is it something that's ideological because however much he, you know, has pronounced a turning point in German policy, he still is affected, as you suggested, by this sort of glorious tradition of, of Ostpolitik that dominated the party since the mid-60s. And just one final point for you, you know, you pointed to the fact that German public opinion is deeply divided, as uh, the poll numbers that you cited show. But I know you've also made the point in other contexts that it's for national leadership to shape public opinion when it's divided like this. And this seems to be something that the chancellor is really loath to do. And what, you know, is that because of the political uh, situation that you talked about, the fear that he will be upended by his own or defenestrated by his own party? Or is it in the, you know, rooted back in the ideology or biography? I'm just fascinated by, you know, by uh, the, personal question here. I know you don't want to go there, but I think it'd be useful to hear from you on it. Well, thank you very much for the uh, free plug on my column. Um, It's very kind of you. You know, the phenomenon of the move from left to right is not that uncommon in in, in German politics and in the Social Democratic Party. Famously, Joschka Fischer, the first Korean foreign minister, uh, had been a thrower of plaster stones, pavement stones, sorry, um, in his in his youth in the in the nineteen sixties, and then you know became a fairly respected and um, I think neocon friendly foreign minister back in the day of the Yugoslav wars, right? And I think we should give Schultz credit for what I believe to be a genuine political maturation. I don't hear him paying even lip service to Ostpolitik, right? Or, um, or to making nice with Russia for that matter. I think it's possible that in the first weeks of the war, he and his advisors might have thought there would be a return to some sort of a status quo, right? And that Ukraine needed to be persuaded in one way or another to come to the bargaining table. I think in the intervening 11 months, of this war, um, it has become obvious to everybody, including the chancery and the chancellor and his advisors, that the Russians are not amenable to this. For one, all of us will have read those draft treaties that they sent to the White House and to Brussels, in fact, before the beginning of the war, on 17 December of 21, where they not where, where it was made very clear that this was not just about pulling Ukraine back into the Reich, for want of a better comparison but also about turning back the clock of democratic transformation in Eastern Europe, about the military neutralization of Western Europe, and about getting the Americans out of Europe. Those, those identical treaty drafts are really worth rereading. That and the intervening language that I've already cited, that is reminiscent of nothing so much as of Karl Schmidt, the crown jurist of the Nazis, who... Uh, is responsible for the category of the relative and the absolute enemy, the absolute enemy being categorized by its nature and which is therefore impossible to negotiate with. Again, to any educated German, it's very hard to imagine how you would negotiate with that mindset. It is intimately familiar to us. So I'm tempted to think that this is about something else. It is about a I think about Scholz's perceptions 
uh, or acute consciousness of the very narrow margins in which he has to operate. Recall that when he won the elections in September 2021, A, he was an implausible candidate and his, his party was an implausible candidate to win because it had been, been in the poll doldrums for the better part of a dec decade. And because it had, it was seen by most Germans as having been worn out in three of Angela Merkel's coalitions, right? Of her four coalitions. And when he did win, it was at least as much because of the character failings and the exquisitely awful communication of his conservative challenger, Armin Laschet, as on his own merits, although they did, I think, have a very shrewd campaign. So it was the failings of his opponent and also, I think, a, a, a mood for change in the air and a willingness on the part of German voters to let the Greens and the Liberals into power. So, and he got into power with one percentage point advantage over the Conservatives and with his the first three-way coalition in, in Germany with the Greens and the Liberals, who both of them got very good results. So not only did he squeak in by a hair's breadth, he also has strong and confident um, coalition partners to contend with, both of whom um, on the issue of leaning into the support of Ukraine have a much more decisive and much more resolute take than he does, right? And at the same time, he has to deal with a party that is still going through a generational and attitudinal shift with a German po population that still has not fully digested um, every, the consequences of this, of this war for the security of the continent. And that, I suspect, is what makes him so um, circumspect and so hesitant. So, Constanza, I wonder if I could broaden the discussion. You know, needless to say, I think whenever we talk about Germany, the shadow of the past appears. And, and, and I guess um, the, part of what I find puzzling is, is this, that, you know, if, if Germany produced in the not-so-distant past actually some quite remarkable European statesmen, uh, you mentioned one of them, Helmut Schmidt. I think he definitely qualifies as a European statesman, not just as a German statesman. But I've also mentioned somebody like Manfred Werner, who was not only a great uh, Secretary of Defense, but a great Secretary General of, of NATO. Uh, Germany at one point had actually a very, very powerful military. I mean, I remember visiting the Bundeswehr in the 80s, and the consensus in the American military was that they were as good as we were and in some ways better. Certainly through the 1970s, they were, but there was, it was a very competent, well-equipped modern military. And, and yet, you know, when we come to the present, I just don't get the sense of Germany being able to exercise the leadership you would expect. And, and I, I don't find the World War II, you know, kind of legacy of all that explanation entirely convincing. I'm sure that there's some element of that. And and it doesn't no, explain no. things like the deterioration of it doesn't explain things like the deterioration of the Bundeswehr. There is, I'm sure you've seen it. There was a really devastating piece of Der Spiegel about the Bundeswehr mm. uh, recently, okay. which is just in dreadful shape. So I, I suppose my question is, 
you know, I understanding that every country is, you know, their domestic politics are inward looking. But do you think Germany will be able to recover to to assert some kind of leadership role, hopefully in the course of this crisis, but at least for the future? I mean, is, is this going to be a watershed moment in that way? Or are we going to be dealing with the Germany that we've got now, which, you know, will eventually does the right thing, but seemingly reluctantly and not in a way that's bringing other countries along with it in some sort of common direction? Great question. Again, complicated. So Helmut Schmidt was my publisher when I was at Die Zeit. So I sat with him in an editorial conference at least once a week, and I occasionally would have to do battle with him. Um, it was a test of metal and of courage for any of us to have to go to his office with edits on a piece of his. Um, and, and I had some very memorable encounters with him. Um, and honestly, I, had a, I have fond memories of him, but I will also say that he was a man of his time and generation. And that I think non-German audiences are somewhat less aware of this, but, but Schmidt in his very last years uh, gave some quite problematic interviews about the, the nationhood or lack thereof of Ukraine and, and other aspects, right? He was also an utterly realpolitik politician. And those were, in fact, the fiercest battles that I personally had with him. Um, I can go into details, but I don't think we have the time for this. On Manfred Wona, I will just say, yes, he has the reputation of having been a great German defense minister. But I would, in fairness, say that it was one thing to be a German defense minister in a time of limited sovereignty uh, with hundreds of thousands of allied troops, French, German, and English, stationed on West German to uh, soil, and of course, hundreds of thousands of Soviets stationed on East German soil. And of course, the, the, the situation of the Bundeswehr was entirely different. The Bundeswehr had one task during the Cold War, which is defend, to defend the intra-German border of 1,700 kilometers against a Soviet Union onslaught for what was presumed to be a maximum of three weeks, after which nuclear war would, be, would ensue and um, both countries would be a pile of ashes, more or less. Right? That, was the, that was the assessment. So Germany's armed forces were armor and, and, and infantry heavy, and were deployed in such a way as to make full use of the, of the German Autobahn, German hospitals, and German gas stations. In other words, the opposite of the kind of expeditionary warfare that we were asked to do or learn how to do after 9-11. It's also important to say that the German armed forces were an afterthought of German, the Germany's constitution. When, the, when we gave ourselves a basic law in 1949, we were not supposed to have armed forces. It didn't exist. We were asked to stand them up by NATO and as an entry prize for joining NATO in 1955. And we had to stand up 12 divisions. That's half a million men, no women at the time, it, within short notice. And the generation of my, my dad, who was drafted as a 16-year-old, as a were rioting in the streets. Not my dad personally, but, but many of them. There were, there were violent demonstrations across Germany at, at even reintroducing armed forces in, in our own country. 
that's how profound the disgust and the and the trauma were of that generation. And and again, this is something I, I described in my in my last FT column. I don't want to sort of sort of quote myself here, but but the trajectory that the German armed forces had to undertake after 19, um, after 1989, um, abolishing conscription because it wasn't viable for a small professionalized um, uh, expeditionary force, sending troops to Somalia and to the Balkans and then to Afghanistan uh, in fairly significant quantities, um, that was a larger stretch for us to move from where we had been during the Cold War to that. And in the course of that time, pretty much all of Germany's parties, including the conservatives and the social democrats, I think kept a marked distance to them. Merkel was famously dismissive of military policy, paid very little attention to it, was happy to see ministers uh, hoist themselves by their own petards of various natures. Remember Karl Theodor Gutenberg, or de Maizière, or Ursula von der Leyen. A lot of them, and and then of course finally Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer. A lot of them, um, you know, stumbled over what was essentially an impossible job, right? Um, and of course the expert community to which I suppose I to some degree belong were saying for uh, you know all this time we're going to regret this sometime. We need to we we need to do this differently. If you talk to the German expert community, there are abundant ideas out there of how to change that. But, but the, the final reason why this is also difficult is, of course, that the... Um, and let me just perhaps step back and say, um, you asked, are we capable of actually fulfilling this transformation? And I've, been, I've joked in a speech I gave in Harvard in November that the Zeitenwende is something you could call Schrodinger's Zeitenwende. It both is and is not, right? So... In terms of energy decoupling, um, we have managed to decouple from Russian fossil fuel imports with record speed, helped, of course, by the fact that the Russians turned off the gas tap themselves and sent prices skyrocketing. But still, we did that. It is much more difficult to do in defense. Why? Because the entire constitutional arrangement, the way that, that German defense policy is made, the way that the armed forces are constituted, was designed after 1955 when we reintroduced them in a way to essentially resist any kind of disruptive change, right? And can I just say, 100% success. Yeah, that is, in other words, you really have to change, fiddle with the architecture of the system here. And a lot of defense ministers have sort of failed at that. We have what the current, the new defense minister is the 20th, um, and we're on our ninth chancellor. That tells you everything you need to know. You've mentioned a number of things that intrigue me, and I want to get your reaction to it. You've talked about Timothy Snyder's book, Bloodlands, and about the history of destruction wreaked by both Germany and Stalin on uh, this particular piece of territory, which includes Belarus, by the way. It's not just not just Ukraine. Absolutely. And you've talked about Victor Klemper's studies of the Nazi use of language and the really troubling ways in which a lot of the Russian state propaganda has, you know, eerie echoes of precisely that language use. You've talked about Carl Schmidt. I think it was Leo Strauss in 1953 or so who talked about the reductio ad Hitlerum. And so we're all very chary of ever making, you know, the comparison 
to Hitler. And of course, the you know, if you even breathe that about Putin, people will say, well, he hasn't killed 20 million people. So how can he be, how can he be Hitler? But I've more and more, and some other colleagues I've talked to uh, see this as well, am, am seeing Putin in a, a light that puts him very much in the sort of company of Hitler in the late 1930s, challenging the security order in Europe, contemptuous of his adversaries. I mean, what was it that Hitler said uh, after meeting with Chamberlain in Munich? I've seen my I've seen my enemies, they're worms. I mean, you get a very similar sense from Putin of his assessment of his his adversaries. The eliminationist rhetoric that you mentioned on Russian television is genocidal rhetoric about Ukrainians and how they ought to be treated. And of course, the way the war has been fought, which has been you know an ongoing series of war crimes since the very beginning of the war in Bucha, in the first you know weeks of the war. And it's continued, you know, up until the present day. So at, at what point do you think it is fair to actually make the comparison uh, and say, well, yes, you know, he hasn't killed 20 million people yet. But if we allow this to go on, there's no telling uh, where it will end. Is, is that a fair or unfair assessment? What's your take on it? Well, of course, I agree with you on on the, on the problematic comparison. Um, and I could remind you and our listeners that there was a huge fight in in Germany, the so-called Historikerstreit, the historians' debate, about the comparability of the of the Third Reich and the Holocaust with the with the depredations of the Soviet Union. And I think one has to be careful about that. But I have been thinking about the related question of the enemy. Uh, both in the context of that that speech I gave at Harvard, a memorial speech for Guido Goldman um, in November, and, and that is also something that I'm uh, thinking about in the context of a book I'm supposed to write. And I and I do think that that Putin is, ironically, if you will, pushing us uh, into reconsidering a category in international affairs that we thought we had basically driven a stake through. After 1945, um, fumigated, you know, exercised, and that's the category of the enemy. And as I was saying earlier, the absolute enemy in the Schmittian terms. And um, I think that if we listen to the language of Putin of the Kremlin and of Russian state-funded media, we have to conclude that that is how Putin sees not just Ukraine, but the West. And the democratic West. And this has nothing to do with NATO encirclement, of course. This is about liberal modernity, right? It is about whether Ukraine, a Slavic country with that is half Catholic, half Orthodox, can choose that path and what kind of a challenge cultural and political that is to Putin's power. Um, but it is couched in terms which I think a, a desperate um, leader who has very who has no soft power and dwindling hard power assets feels he needs in order to assure himself of the consent of his people. But is, isn't the issue more than just Russia? I mean, more than just Putin, excuse me, but to some extent, a broader Russian problem. Oh, I mean, sure. I, I, I am not this, saying, this, I'm not trying to make a distinction, Elliot, between Putin and his people. I, I, yeah. That to me is a somewhat academic debate in, in the same way. Uh, and again, as a German, you know, if there is anything 
that I can give you chapter and verse about. Yeah, it's about those gradations. Yeah, at this point, I think we have to conclude that there is significant popular consent and certainly elite consent, and that that yeah. implicates in the responsibility and the guilt uh, many people beyond Putin. Yeah, I, th I think that's, for me, one of the most troubling things about all this. You know, and you, I think you can see it simply in the, the scale um, of the atrocities that have been committed, which are being committed, many of them not on orders, but just, you know, that's what people are doing. And uh, it, it's very troubling. I'd like to uh, go back, if I could, a little bit to the question of where Germany goes. And again, although you know, if we had more time, I'd, I might try to argue with you a bit about the past, but let's set that aside. And I get my question is, you know, for Germany to lead going forward, understanding all the constraints because of German politics and all that, is there enough of a sense of urgency in the German system to do things like, you know, reform the Bundeswehr in such a way so that it, it can be one of Europe's leading militaries and to sort of take initiative in terms of shaping the European security environment? Because at least the way it, it looks to me, at the moment, if you were to ask me, where, where's the center of uh, kind of policy energy with regard to national security, I would say it's in places like Warsaw, Tallinn, maybe Helsinki, London, okay, Washington, D.C., it always uh, was, but I wouldn't say Berlin, and I don't think I could say Paris either, and I wonder... Is that a, a passing phenomenon? And eventually, you know, Germany will kind of step forward in some uh, more substantial way? Or is, is this a, a development that will be with us for some time? Uh, so a couple things here. And I'm still, I confess, I'm still thinking about some parts of Eric's question, but, but that may be for another time. But, um, oh, yes, I wanted to throw a Nietzsche quote at you. This is about the the category of the of the enemy, right? That that was that was my earlier point. Is that we need to expand the way we think about the paradigm of international relations, where we have moved from international cooperation to strategic competition, which were for the Germans, for whom this was the be all and end all of what happened in 1989 and 90, was particularly difficult. We have to expand that 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 paradigm by the category of the enemy, right? or of countries who think of us as the enemy, and for reasons that are not negotiable in realist terms, right? And that, that I think, is, again, to Germans, a particularly disturbing thought. And that I understand psychologically is, is very hard to wrap one's mind about. I think perhaps the reason why I find it a little easier is, is that I come from a very specific generation, which is that I'm the daughter of Germans, um, one of whom was old enough to be drafted late in the war and one of whom was bombed out of Berlin as a child. And so the, and I've, I, you know, I've, I've been on a fair number of German military deployments myself and I've written about traumatized soldiers. The passing on of trauma, yeah, both among the victims and the perpetrators is a, you know, is, is a thing. And I, and I think that that also is, operates in subterranean ways that are difficult to grasp. Yeah. That is not to excuse policy inaction or policy mistakes, but I think it is a phenomenon that one has to deal with and perhaps to speak to 
when trying to persuade as a German political leader two different generations of Germans. Anyway, that, that's by the by. To your question of can Germany change and will it change and has the center of political gravity moved to the East? I have heard that latter point. It's, you know, it is obviously a Warsaw talking point for all the obvious reasons. And I have to say, I'm, I'm not entirely persuaded by it. Because while the, I think the Baltic states and the, uh, and, and the Poles have, I think, been both factually and morally right in their early warnings about the malignancy of Russian intent. And I think that's acknowledged by many in, in Berlin and in Paris at this point. Um, I would also have to see them wanting and able to lead uh, Europe. And that I don't think I'm seeing it. And for reasons I think which would be perhaps not right to go into here in, in detail. You know, the Poles have a national election this year and it's not entirely clear that the peace government will win it because its population is so split. And so I think for, to some degree, Germany in particular, because of its geolocation and its economic power, is fated to play a leadership role. And I think that in German disc debates and in German politics, this ability and, and comes in waves, frankly. You remember the, the Munich consensus in 2014, right, at the Munich Security Conference, when you had a president, a, a defense minister, and a foreign minister saying, uh, we have to play a much greater role in Europe and put much more of our own weight behind European foreign and security policy. That was on January 31st, and then the Russians annexed Crimea illegally in February. And, and I think that uh, and things developed otherwise. It's ironic to look back at that. Um, I will say, though, that the Germans, when they want to and can need and need to, can move incredibly fast, apparently, if you look at the energy of coupling. And if, if there is one sort of ray of light that I can find in this tank debacle, um, it is that I think it has now become apparent to all of us, the last German citizen, that... Um, our armed forces are in bad shape, that we need to do something about that for our allies' sake, for Ukraine's sake, and for our own sake. Um, and so I think the, the new defense minister has a, a huge job on his hand, but I'm actually, he's only, been, he's only been in this role since Thursday, but on the whole, my impression has actually been relatively good. Um, I, I think that he might stand a chance of, of doing this. And, and the, the, the Rammstein debacle has, I think, given him an opening to do that. I hope you're right, because, you know, I think if that were to happen, set aside German leadership in Europe, but if Germany simply was able to, to, you know, to deliver on Schultz's promises about the Bundeswehr, about not just about the gross level of defense spending, but about modernization, in a whole variety of ways and in a serious way, I have to think the impact on the Russians would be pretty profound. And if, you know, part of, if we begin to think about some sort of end game, part of it will be, I think, when the Russians really are convinced that they are going to lose this thing one way or the other. And I, I do believe that one part of that would be seeing a Germany that 
really is not going to go back to its previous set of relationships, but beyond that is actually, you know, really reestablishing itself as a major national security power in Europe. Yeah, well, we would have a lot by at this point to overcome in terms of um, distrust uh, and recriminations, but I hope that too. I can tell you that from my own knowledge of internal German debates, both at the elite levels and in the expert community, um, there is a very strong desire to do that yeah. and a really strong sense of generational responsibility. I can certainly say that for myself. I've, I've, you know, my parents are no longer alive, but I think, you know, their generation would immediately understand that in some ways, you know, our history has come full circle and that this is the time to get it right. I'm sorry to in, indulge in, in this pathos, but, but I, I do feel very strongly about this and I know other people who do as well. On the question of whether the current German defense minister is off to a good start. Of course, the bar was set very low by his predecessor. So um... I knew you were going to say that, <laughs> but yes, no, she was she was terrible, um, and he he gives the impression of being decisive, communicative, uh, open, and and you know willing to to overcome hurdles. Not none of those things were ever said of her. Yeah, I, I do want to explore, though, with you a little bit the the seeming incongruity of the apparent uh, German government insistence that before it can resolve this question of the leopards, whether it allows third parties to transfer them, the Poles, the Finns, others, or whether it does itself, which is a, a more vexed question, I think, because of the state of disrepair and how long it would take to get them uh, repaired, but the insistence that unless the U.S. was willing to provide M1 Abrams tanks, yep. you know, there, would, yep. there would be no leopards for Ukraine. And we can put aside the whole question of the military utility and the various pros and cons of one platform or the other. But what strikes me about this is it, it seems to be very much at variance with the trend towards European strategic autonomy a discussion about a European pillar of defense, you know, because it's recurring to the, you know, to the United States as the ultimate guarantor of European security. And I wonder if you could help us disentangle all of this, you know, why, why was this, you know, evoked as, well, first evoked as the, you know, as the reason for caution on the part of the German government and then withdrawn, uh, you know, well, we didn't really do it only to have the Americans tell everybody that, well, yes, they really did. So what's going on here? Well, I, I think it's certainly true that the past 11 months have shown that Franco-German uh, dreams of European sovereignty um, don't have a strong grounding in reality, at least not where military force is concerned. I will say, if I may, that the Biden administration's bet on Europe was one that counted not so much on our military support, although that has ended up mattering, but on our economic support. And that in a strategy that in as much as it engaged directly with or rather against Russia, counted on economic power, we were not just a sort of boutique add-on for American power, but in fact, co-equals. 
because of our enormous economic weight and our regulatory space. And that in that sense, the administration understood, to quote my, my former colleague and predecessor as director Tom Wright, who's now in the administration, that was using measures short of war to counter Russian aggression and to support Ukraine, that, that Europe's economic power gave it crucial leverage, not just nice to have boutique leverage. Right. So, so there is, uh, there is, I think, a an element there, where I, one of the lesson, lessons of strategic competition is is also that we uh, are interdependent with each other. Yeah, that the American superpower is interdependent with Europe in ways that that you know also didn't figure largely in America's narrative of itself. Right. And I think that is something to be considered for in the future of the alliance and in the way we think about it, not least in the way that we try to map out uh, how we would handle a, a conflict with China. So, Constanza, I, I was wondering, you know, we've been talking about, a lot about the SPD. Of course, the SPD is associated with Ostpolitik, going back to the days of Willy Brandt. Uh, of course, one of the interesting phenomena is the Green Party being quite ferocious in ways that are welcome to an American's ears uh, and a little bit surprising, I suppose. We hear less from the Christian Democrats, and I, I assume that they're kind of harder line than the SPD, but that may only be a matter of uh, degree. So I was wondering if you could just flesh out for us the rest of the German political spectrum, because the SPD won't be around forever, and It'll be particularly interesting, I think, to see where the Greens uh, end up going, if, particularly if they continue to be popular. Sure. Well, let me do the executive summary for the nervous here, because this could be sort of quite a long uh, explanation, and I, and I don't want to inflict that on either you or your listeners. But um, very simply, I think the first thing to look at is the opposition leader, which, which is Merkel's Conservative Party, right? Which I think it has to be said is not a strong player in this debate. Some of its parliamentarians, especially those who have military experience, are, but the leadership, I would say, isn't. So uh, that's one point to consider. The Green ministers, Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock and Economics Minister Robert Habeck, are, I think by general consensus considered to be the strongest and most capable and most successful ministers in this cabinet and have consistently pushed outwards, leaning into the support of Ukraine. And I think it's greatly to the credit of Habeck and his team that they have orchestrated the decoupling from Russian fossil fuel in, um, imports in this way without either the German consumer or German industry having a heart attack. I mean, we did alienate our neighbors a little bit with some of the subsidies, um, et cetera, et cetera, industry packages and so on, but that's by the by. And I personally appreciate the way that Annalena Baerbock has stood up to that old shark, Mr. Lavrov, um, and, and other um, sort of interlocutors in, uh, of, of that kind, uh, of her trips to Kiev and so on. I think the criticism of her tenure, to be fair, is that while she was, she's overseen the writing of a very forceful, forceful China strategy, um, she has otherwise been rather less successful at shaping politics. She has articulated well and much better than the, than the chancellor, but her shaping power is still, I think, uh, an open question, unlike that of Habeck. So if you asked me which, was, which one was the likelier candidate uh, for a, a Green Chancellor, it's probably Habeck and not Baerbock. As for the Liberals, 
again, uh, there's the, I think they, they whipsaw too much for them to be uh, a producer of a serious chancellor candidate. And they are like the Social Democrats and the Greens and this traffic light com uh, coalition, of course, have had to make really significant concessions to their coalition partners. Uh, and, and that, in, 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 in the case of the Liberals, is, is permitting, you know, what seems like unlimited government debt, which is, you know, a sacred cow for the business-friendly Liberal Party. Are the hard right and the hard left important? The left, I think, is, is a spent force, culturally, politically, on the federal level and on the local level. The hard right is slightly more complicated, despite the fact that I was horrified in 2017 when they not just made it into the Bundestag for the first time at 12.6%, but because of the fragmentation and Merkel's Grand Coalition became the leader of the opposition, they too, at the federal level, are a discredited and spent force. I'm going to say that straight out. However, as a party, they are still powerful at the local and regional level. We're lucky that we haven't had state elections in Eastern German states in the past year or so and won't have one until uh, the year after, the, after this one. And they have also, I think, put a great deal of energy into trying to uh, unite, bring together or mobilize conspiracy theorists, theorists like the Kredenka to tunnel into the uniformed services and the intelligence services. And we saw that in the coup attempt a couple of weeks ago. That was never going to overthrow the German system, and their leadership figures were laughable. But the fact that they had such support in the armed forces and in other uniformed services ought to disturb us and is a sign not just of their malignant intent, but also of the neg negligence of German political elites who were in supervisory positions, and that is where we need to clean up. So, uh, Constanza, I want to... Uh as is occasionally my want, ask a question that's a little bit out of left field. You, uh, you know, you've had a, a really very interesting transatlantic career in Germany, but also in the United States. And one part of that was a lot of time spent at my alma mater, Harvard. And uh, you were quite close to someone who was, uh, who I was quite close to as one of my teachers, uh, Judith Schlar, a very well-known political philosopher. I was wondering if you could just reminisce a, a bit about her, um, I think, you know, the two of you, I, as I've gotten to know you, have some things in common. Uh, and so just let her rip. What, tell us about Judith Schlar. Well, let me start with something personal, if I may. I've told you about my parents, who were sort of war adolescents and children. Um, my dad became a diplomat. And the, in the years that I spent in Germany, which weren't many, um, Obviously, there were Jewish communities, but they were tiny and they, they weren't visible. Their synagogues were heavily guarded. There was one in Bonn where I was born, um, but there was no sign of Jewish life that you would encounter as a child. And when we moved to Washington in 1970, I was still a child, I remember my mother saying to us, we will meet Jewish people here. And if they don't want to shake your hand, they have a right not to. And I have never forgotten that. And I think my mother meant that, you know, as a sort of trying to help us navigate what could be tense conversations for German children. Um, but it, it really shook me 
And when my Germans had been very had been very upfront about the Holocaust, about World War II, they had le left nothing to to doubt about. And it was only as an adult that I understood that other parents hadn't been quite as frank or as forthcoming. But so when I came to Harvard, um, after having gone to law school in in Germany, um, we're still in the 1980s, you know. Jewish, there, there must have been Jewish fellow students, but they wouldn't wear a kippah. I only saw that after I came back in 1990. Um, you know, it was nav navigating an environment with Jewish fellow students and, and Jewish teachers and Jewish teachers whom I knew to be refugees from the Holocaust, you know, to me was a, was a really sort of serious concern, how to behave appropriately and how to deal with possibly rejection, right? of which there were instances. Although I will say that the actual refugees um, were usually the kindest. But so it was, so I took Judith Klar's class in political, uh, American political thought because I was uh, planning to write a German doctorate about direct democracy in America uh, for my law faculty in Germany. And because I was interested in democratic movements in, in Germany and round tables and so on. This was in the late 80s and, you know, there was a wind blowing that suggested from Germany and elsewhere and from Poland that this might become an issue and that maybe popular movements weren't all that bad. Um, and so I went to her um, really with my heart in my mouth, as we say in Germany, uh, and asked her after I'd passed her class um, whether she would do reading and research with me. And um, and I explained to her and I said, you know, I will give you a reading list and I will um, and, and, and then I'll write an essay, but I promise to leave you alone. But it would be a great honor if, if you would let me do that. And she looked at me and then said, I don't think that's going to work. And I thought, OK, I, I've made a mistake. And then she said, I think this will only work for you if I reserve for you an hour every every week in my office in Winder Library, the way I do in the other Cambridge. And um, you come to me um, and then we discuss your, your, your paper. And, and I was thunderstruck by this. It's not the kind of thing that German professors did. And I said, in that case, let's do it the way you do it in the other Cambridge. I will come to you with a paper each week. And I, I have to say, you know, I, I think I was at 24 um, gloriously ill-informed, not just about my subject, but also about her. But, but those sessions with her in her office in Widener Library were not just a, and one of the great honors of my life, but also one of the great learning experiences of my life. One of the, the few really true mentors I have had, and I, it is the reason why I um, hold her in such regard. But of course, as is always the case, you learn about people as you become an adult, you learn more and more. And I met people who were friends of hers, such as Guido Goldman. And I read her, her writings, and I was especially, I think, struck and, and marked for the rest of my life by her essay about the liberalism of fear, which was something that she had raised in her classes, but not fully written down, um, or at least I hadn't read it yet. And that was the thought that democracy, representative democracy in particular, doesn't just serve great ideals, it, it exists to prevent fundamental cruelties. And I remember sitting in her class when she said that and thinking, I understand exactly what you were talking about. I understand that to the depths of, the, in, with every fiber of my being, 
but I am not sure my American classmates do. First, that both fascinating and also deeply moving. I'll remember two things that she said. You know, she wrote this book on the seven deadly sins. And I remember her insisting cruelty is the worst. Uh, and I think it helps account also for her friendship with Isaiah Berlin, who had a very similar. And who was um, also from Riga. Yeah, had very and they had very similar outlooks, outlooks mm -hmm. on the world. The other things I remember her saying to a group of us graduate students, she said, you know, you become a political scientist for one of two reasons. You're either fascinated by power or you're afraid of it. She said, most of you are in the first category. I'm in the second one. It was a, quite a remarkable teacher. Yes. You know, and that, you know, when I was asked to take on uh, the security policy topic at my old newspaper, Die Zeit, and I inherited it first from Theo Sommer, who had been the editor, and then from Christoph Bertram, who you may have encountered. And I, did, I was yes. the first woman to ever do that. And I was frankly terrified of the responsibility. I also thought, okay, rather me than somebody who thinks that power is awesome, right? I am terrified of all of this. And I had, and I have been to many places that were terrifying, including Kigali in July of 1994, uh, the Balkans and Afghanistan. And I have many personal reasons to, to think of Judith Clark and to say, yes, cruelty is the worst. Well, I think that's an appropriate note on which to, to end this uh, episode of Shield of the Republic. I'm very grateful, and as I know Elliot is, to our guest, Constanza Stelzenmiller, who is the director of the Center on the U.S. and Europe at the Brookings Institution and also the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations. Constanza, thank you for uh, a kind of fascinating tour d'horizon of certainly uh, Germany and its current travails and uh, its impact on transatlantic relations, but much, much more than that. So I'm uh, very, really grateful to you for that. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you, Constanza. It's been a pleasure and an honor.